Let me respond with the interlocking piece to that, that it's, it's amazing to be in this room and to be speaking with each other uh, um, as a collection of peers with, with interesting and parting things to say to each other and, and really to be sitting next to you. Because as colleagues, when, um, you know, I, to come into translation is really to come into um, a really global ambition as opposed to a local ambition, uh, to go beyond whatever classroom that you were taught in or uh, whatever town you were raised in and the limits of your local library or your local culture um, and to think um, really in a whole different scale, um, a scale that uh, Chris has you know, really devoted his career to sort of being the personal ambassador, thinking that way for, for Americans and, and monolingually educated people. So uh, I'm really grateful to even be on your horizon. So, okay. And now I'll give my talk. Um, I wanted to begin by suggesting actually my discomfort with the conventions that are normally taken to discussing literary influence, which conventions I have barely heard at all here. I mean, the linear, um, descendant-based um, way of talking about convention. Because I want to suggest that influence need not come from literary forebears at all, from elders, teachers, or even people, that there's something inhuman about influence. Uh, for me, the conventional notion of influence, regardless of the gender or the rank of the participants, is too close to patrilineage. It's really, usually this discussion is modeled on patrilineage, right? It's about generally about males. Um, even when it's not about males, it's about forebears and inheritance and uh, what the inheritor will do with what he's inherited. And for me, that's just very separate from how I exist in the world. So this is just my personal take on it. Um, it's too close to patrilineage, and, and the patrilineage itself bothers me for three reasons. First, because of its method of conserving a kind of property or wealth, or in this case, prestige, um, or an ownership of originality, like you can own originality and then somebody else will own originality next. Um, because it copies over heterosexist and male-dominated bloodlines and the reproductive futurism that goes with it, like the idea of the heterosexual family and her babies. Um, I do have babies, and I'm in a heterosexual family. So this is about the ideas, the concepts that we kind of map over. And because of most importantly, um, the when we speak conventionally of literary inheritance or influence, um, we implicitly endorse a commitment to linear notions of temporality, that what becomes before influences what comes after it, uh, that the dead proceed and may be sharply delineated from the living, and that the most important to to keep, thing to do is to keep moving forward in time to be part of progress or something. And I find these notions very confining, and it's been really exciting to hear different kinds of metaphors today. And even at Charlie's reading last night, I wrote down all of your metaphors for kind of a cross-pollinization, um, the craziness, the spirit telephone, uh, which is notorious fraud, right? So the fr I would add to that the fraudulence of influence and contact. Um, technology, when you speak of those two poets um, and the cradle, um, then you have technology, the cradle of the telephone, and the cradle itself. Technology kind of replaces natality, replaces birthright, and that's interesting too, and art replaces kind of conventional ideas of birthright. And also whack, um, because it has violence and it's onomatopoetic rather than conventionally semantic, so there's something that comes into you that can't be articulated in what we think of as articulateness, that is its own articulation. So already we're compiling a number of metaphors that to me are much more persuasive than the kind of inheritance um, linear influence um, that, that influence usually carries. Because it seems to me that a discussion of literary influence really benefit from thinking uh, new metaphors um, 
or learning from new metaphors from each other um, outside of these structures and strictures. And for me, I'm thinking for influence in terms of the dead metaphors that are inherent in its etymology of flow, flux, fluidity, fluctuation, uh, to which I would add saturation and also suppuration. Suppuration, that is, like a wound. Um, that are inherent in the term influence itself, and influence as a total inundation with art. And yes, I'm using a capital A on art if you're making notes. Um, <laughs> I started doing that because it annoys everyone, especially Americans, but I think that's okay. So influence as a total inundation with art, um, inundation of a fluctuating, oscillating, unbearable, sublime, inconsistent, and forceful fluid. That such a discussion should require the reanimation of the dead metaphor of fluid or flow and influence is non-coincidental to my mind because when you think about art, um, I think about it as something undead, uncanny, something that does not progress, does not move towards a cleaner, better lit future, does not conserve, is not healthy or community oriented, does not preserve a stable, reasonably priced image of the artist for the future or secure that inheritance, but pursues its own interests pierces, ravages, remakes the artist, and repurposes him or her as a kind of host body to counterfeit more viral art in art's own image. Art which possesses the artist, makes the medium in both senses of the word of the artist, both the technological medium and the cult medium, forces the artist to swell, mutate, rupture, and leak art into the world. To my mind, that is the thrilling and debilitating force of art, its influence. Global warming, melting ice caps, blacked out species, literary landscapes such as, snows, such as the snows of Kilimanjaro, which are disappearing. A 20th century reference now rendered, or increasingly rendered as remote as Ozymandias. Uh, the 20th century turned into a cryptic, occult, anachronistic thing, rising in strange places and reanimated now in our 21st century, dressed in the flesh the grave cave ate. Because after all, Ozymandias' legacy does survive diminished but not undead as a kind of art rot that rots through art, seeps through art. In place of patrilineage, mutation, decomposition, beware, beware. One literary life lived nine times over, like Lady Lazarus or Wolf's Orlando or Seiza Iris Nun or all Bologna's heteronyms, um, living in body after body, a life lived in two signatures like Dorian Gray, both embalmed and desiccating, persisting, contaminating art's unnatural acts. To now speak of something that is not a text, or not a literary text, um, the American underground filmmaker Jack Smith, who made the still notorious film flaming creatures, I hope people have seen, uh, caused riots in America. Um, he began his career, or the, the seed of his career was an unnatural and very negative, um, in terms of life, deathy, negativity, nostalgia surrounding the Dominican movie star Maria Montez. And um, as Jack Smith you know, began being a filmmaker, he found a young Puerto Rican drag queen and rechristened him Mario Montez and cast Mario Montez, the beautiful fake, the counterfeit in his movies, in Jackson's movies, as a medium for Maria Montez. Um, and he and Mario Montez uh, built shrines to Maria Montez and reenacted her movies in, in strange kind of queer situations. Um, Maria, Mario Montez became a medium for the undead occult desiccating glamour. Um, and Jack Smith confected the term superstar, which was later appropriated by Eddie Warhol for his 15-minute famers. Um, and uh, Mario Montez survived Jack Smith. Jack Smith kind of flamed out um, did performances just in his apartment for whoever would come. Um, performances of such slowness that they confounded and mesmerized the audiences. And finally, Jack Smith died of AIDS in the 80s in penury. And as he lied back in his charity hospital bed, 
he said that he would just recline there, a ravaged body, but still in drag, not literally, obviously, but metaphysically in drag as Maria Montez, dying in arts drag as death, because as he told a friend, I just recline because nobody can recline in Maria Montez, like Maria Montez did. So even in his deathbed in the charity ward in the 80s from AIDS in New York City, he was still reclining like Maria Montez, this kind of toxic influence that had remade itself in all his art. Not toxic, but sublime, really. So that's a model of influence. In case of patrilineage, a cyclicality and expenditure of trashing and doubling of Maria Montez, Maria Montez, Jack Smith, arts radiant nobody that finds body after body. So, debilitation by art, shredding by art, imitating art, beware, beware, decline, decline. After all, that's all or at least one half of the sublime, right? The debilitating part. Moving away from measurable profit and from time. Or to choose another model of influence for our contemporary environmental dystopia. Influence as a poison, a contamination of the water table with mutagenic elements, as in Japan or off the American Gulf Coast or everywhere, really. A spill, a leak, a kill off, a spawning cycle. Many clones, many hooded men, total inundation by bad instincts, and reproduction via digital media itself. Like WikiLeaks burned onto a Lady Gaga CD. Did you know that? that the original <laughs> WikiLeak cables were burned onto a Lady Gaga CD, supposedly, by uh, Bradley Manning, supposed WikiLeaker. Every portrait is art self-portrait, art shit, art trash. You wear the hooded mask of art, sleep in the sleeper cell of art naked. Uh, like Bradley Manning, who's now sleeping, he has to be naked all the time because he's supposedly a threat to himself. This guy who's been accused of being the original leaker of the WikiLeaks. He's uh, in a military jail. Um, he sleeps in light all the time. And uh, having spilled the knowns and the known unknowns across the biggest insufferable, insufferable leaks. So I'm talking about art's influence, art itself, inhuman, non-humanist, which flows toxically through media and images, and yes, through the works of specific artists that engender clones, contamination, anachronism that has retroactive and special effects, under effects, trick effects, trick lighting, and trick shots, and that post ghost conversations like the spirit telephone that repeats itself, beware, beware, that doppelgangs up upon itself, that possesses, rots, evanesces, prized away from the neat rhetoric of forebears and reception, imitation, inheritance, and inherited traits. We release the lawlessness, the infectiousness, the jouissance of art's influence. I think joy is the word that was used in the um, world's imitation. Um, the making and remaking that it perpetrates, that includes the artist himself. I just find it so liberating, frankly, to be free of linear time, of linear literary genes, of forward thinking and progress and founders and heirs, and instead enter into a variegated zone of alteration, mutation, change, generation, replication, which draws little distinction between me, my body, my laptop, my output, my outfit, or my input. Output is just a chance for me to counterfeit or imitate or amplify my input, albeit with dolled up mutagenic effects. My laptop is full of toxic chemicals, disassembled by hand by children in China, wherein it will have mutagenic effects on their gametes. My iPhone is radiating my carpals, tumoring my brain. My typing makes my handshakes, and my reading makes me stutter like it never did before I became a writer. The birds sing in Greek to Virginia Woolf. They sing to the Brazilian sweet Ivan Falstrom in Birdo. That was the language he thought the birds spoke to him. And he translated works like by poet, like the raven, into this Birdo language. They sing for musical instruments in the concentration camp and at the apocalypse sing quartet for the end of time. I speak in tongues. Someday I'll read you post the raven in Falstrom's Birdo translation. In the classroom, I use a term for this mutagenic zone of art. Stealing a phrase from the Swedish poet Osadari, I call it the deformation zone. 
Translation is the ultimate manifestation of art's deformation zone. For entering yourself into art's mutagenic properties, for being entered and altered and destroyed, if necessary, by art's prerogatives. Translation isn't mechanistic. It happens in real time, but also across time. It certainly happens backwards. It changes he who takes and he who gives. No boundaries can stand up to translation's inundation. Everything is rendered a membrane by translation. Therefore, translation is bioidentical to art's own influence. It spreads and eats and leaks more texts, too many texts, more art. It makes too many versions, translation. It breeds new hybrid languages and obscures the priority of what we used to call the original. Translation's deformation zone then becomes a model for art making itself, a zone where new strange forms and voices and images are animated that would not have existed if the student or the translator or the poet did not enter themselves into that deformation zone. It's transformation zone. It's translation zone or it's trauma zone. It's zero sum play out of order with total commitment and total vulnerability to take the drug of art. To paraphrase Norwich's own China Miego on art's mutagenic properties, we're monsters and we're in it for the fucking monsters. That's cool. Or to read from the monstrous, infectious, microscopic, syllable-by-syllable, vibrating deformation zone of Osebag from Transfer Fat, which is here in the double deformation zone of Johannes Jansen's English translation. So this is a poem from Osebag, from which I took the um, deformation zone, um, a different part of the same poem. It's called Hair Rag. The hair is H-A-R-E, like the rabbits jumping outside. The hair conductor string attacks the, attracts the opposite tone. The string vibrates, dimensions that will crook the instrument. Hearing has a strong time, tugs faster than the string beats. Harpy births child, conducts child over fields of the as yet unprepared. In this brief poem, itself in Swedish, a deformed translation by Barry of English texts of string theory, syllables stutter, deform, repeat, and form new monstrous words. There's no patrilineage here. Art is the harpy, the fucking she-monster, the shit-hurling, alter-befouling hybrid who, impregnated by hearing, by broken, corrupted, crooked vibration, births a child and conducts it over a malleable protein region, a deformation zone, fields of the as-yet-unprepared. Maybe she will drop the seed, or shit, or child, or impregnate the field with this mutant offspring, half monster and half sound. Maybe she will form a further hybrid with this child and reject separation, and the monstrous dull body will keep flying forever through a changing landscape. Further vibrations. Violence, conductivity, flight, monstrous growth, new ineffable vistas, which are themselves in a kind of symbiosis with art. What art conducts itself. Art its potential, its fecundity, its contaminatoriness in and of itself, its viral mediumicity, its monstrosity, its sound, its vibration, its stutter, its contagion, flight-like or fluid, its inhuman influence. <laughs>